0: C.S. Lewis uh, in his uh, Chronicles of Narnia series, a series of books that became quite well known, especially the (laughs) Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, not just for a Christian audience, but uh, generally I've seen the um, reference to Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and others come up in quizzes and general knowledge. It's it's kind of out there, and when um, Lewis was writing, he was writing with a, a young audience in mind. And the land of Narnia, where the stories were set, was a land that was having a bad time. And so Lewis, C.S. Lewis, wanted to um, convey that this this is not right, something's not good here. And because he was writing for a young audience, he he didn't want to, you know, say anything too terrifying in, in, in the description. And so Narnia was a place where it was always winter, but never Christmas. What could be worse than that? (laughs) Always winter, but never Christmas. We readily think, do we not, of winter as a bad thing. Last week, uh, Karen was uh, telling me from information from a a calendar that a town at Norilsk, if that's the right pronunciation, in Siberia, And it's a place where it's so far north that the sun doesn't rise between the 30th of November and the 13th of January. Okay, more than six weeks, zero hours of daylight. And normally there, the snow lies on the ground for 250 days of the year. And this town has a population of over 100,000. That is, it's bigger than Isco Bride. So my f- immediate response when Karen told me that was to say, why don't they move? <laughs> why, why, why does anyone want to live somewhere where there is no sunshine for these six-plus weeks where there's snow on the ground turning fifty days of the year and so on? Well, I would have to know an awful lot more about the circumstances and the, and the situation, but what I, what I knew enough now to know that I don't fancy that you can get too much of winter. But yet, winter is not without its benefits. There are people who like sledging and people who like skiing. There are people who like, who, who like to look out on a, a snowy vista and, and so on. And winter imagery, and Martin Russell, preaching here a few weeks ago from John chapter 10, highlighted this winter imagery was used in the Bible sometimes to describe what was going on in terms of God's work in the world. And I think the imagery of winter applies to much of what the church here in the Western world has known a time of decline, of increased darkness, of little fruitfulness, and so on. And yet, Might it not be that God, the divine gardener, is busy mending fences, cutting back hedges, tying up branches, restaking plants, and pruning? Pruning, of course, an illustration that Jesus and many Bible writers used. Pruning individuals, congregations, and indeed denominations. The cutting back of the winter season is not all negative. That is, it could be that God is doing the kind of work that is necessary to prepare the church for spring growth and summer harvest. Perhaps winter then is not something to be avoided, denied, or rushed through. Winter might offer the church something that is positive for ministry and mission. Strengthening of the root systems come when there is less unpruned on the surface. The challenges of winter might mean a move from rushing around into a time of being more thoughtful, from overactivity or complacency to seeking God. Looking at and thinking about winter and beyond should help us refocus on the themes of death and resurrection, which are right at the heart of the Christian gospel. And the winter season can be a time when we're faced with questions about our, our purpose, our call, our identity. Again, in this time of apparent barrenness, it might be that so that we can remove at the institutional, at the local, and indeed at the individual levels, elements of church life that we have allowed to be there, but which are not gospel-growing ministries. Winter is a season that passes. Winters have come and winters have gone in the history of the people of God. There have been times of promise and growth. Joseph in in Egypt, the right-hand man of the Pharaoh, in establishing a, a good and a gracious work. Moses leading the people of Israel out of slavery and into the promised land, the kingdom of Israel in the time of David and Solomon, the return of the Israelites from exile in Babylon, all of these positive and and life-affirming things, and yet in between them came times of barrenness, and Joseph was forgotten about. And the people of Israel and Egypt became slaves. The kingdom under David and Solomon, and we've been looking at that in the last couple of weeks in in Isaiah, the kingdom under David David and Solomon was actually broken into two. And the people were taken into exile in Babylon. So that through the Bible, and indeed in the 2,000 years since the time of Jesus, The story of God's mission in the world, the story of the people of God, is neither a story of continuing growth, nor is it a story of inevitable decline. There have been times and seasons, fruitful summers and barren winters, and all that's in between. Now, I haven't haven't forgotten about uh, Isaiah chapter 11 that uh, Heather read for us. Look at verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 11, a shoot will come out from the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse was the father of David, King David, the psalmist David, and he'd established a mighty kingdom, but that had gone. It was a ruin, it was a stump. The stump points to what is desolate and, and defunct and demolished. The stump was a sign of the end of David's dynasty. But, verse 1, a new shoot emerges from the stump. That is, a new king was going to come, one who will bear fruit, and one who will, verse 2, have the Spirit of the Lord upon him. Now, when Matthew and Luke both got around, um, about 800 plus years later from the time of Isaiah, when they got round to writing their Gospels, both of them trace the ancestry of Jesus, and it's there in Matthew 1 and in Luke 3. Or is it Luke 2? Sorry, I should, should have checked. Um, it's there, and in both occasions, they can trace the ancestry of Jesus back to, to Jesse's family and, and beyond. It's out of the stump that the shoot comes. From that seemingly dead end comes a new shoot, comes the Messiah. And Isaiah's word to the people was to say that although winter had set in so badly that there seemed to be no possibility of renewal, there was only a stump, God was in fact going to graft in a saviour, one connected with David's line but also someone of another order altogether. For if you look on to verse 10 of the chapter, not only is this a shoot, but this shoot has become, verse 10, the root of Jesse. That is the Messiah, the the one that Isaiah is talking about, is both the origin and the offspring. Now, how can that be? We've got ancestors, we've got descendants, and they're, they're not the same people. Two different groups. We, we try and maybe have some kind of recognition of continuity and there's this habit in families of giving uh, people the name that had already been in the family and naming them after dad or mum or granny or granddad. Um, sometimes we look at, you maybe discover a picture of a grandfather or a great-grandfather and your grandmother great-grandmother, you look at it and you think, what, the resemblance is striking. But no matter what we try to do with names, no matter the striking resemblances in appearance, your ancestors are one group of people, your descendants are another. And yet, what, what Isaiah is told here, what he's giving us in, in chapter 11, is this word about a Messiah who is both the shoot, verse 1, but also the root of Jesse, verse 10. Now, I'm sure Isaiah, writing at the time, wouldn't know how such was going to be fulfilled. But when Jesus came, he was this descendant of Jesse. He was from that stump, as Matthew and Luke spell out for us. And he'd even gone further back. He was the one through whom the world was created. Jesus was the person who could say, as he does in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. But he's also the new shoot, the one who's the pioneer of faith, the one who's the first fruits of the resurrection when he rose from the dead. So this word about the shoot growing out of the stump is a word too is about God's salvation, that it's something he does. It's a salvation that comes when our efforts had failed, when there seems no hope in and of ourselves, when there's merely a stump left, and we cannot be the ones who renew that or organize eternal life for ourselves. It's the work of God. It's a word to us that says no matter how deep or how serious a winter season we are caught up in, God is not finished yet. There is no secular frost so powerful that it can destroy the life of God and the life of his people. Yes, there may be hard times, but they won't always last. The seemingly hard times might be, as as often winter is, a necessary time of preparing, searching, thinking, and reshaping for new life to come. I'll wait until you've got that. They're all in denial. Somebody's giving. okay, thanks. Hard times then, but God is at work. And this shoot, this route, will be sustained and guided by the Spirit of God. The Messiah, Jesus, was one on whom the Spirit would rest, verse 2. But also who was able to give the gift of the Spirit to his people. The Spirit is the one through whom Jesus is conceived in Mary. He's the one who anoints Jesus for ministry at his baptism. And the impact and the fruitfulness of Jesus' ministry was not just because he was the Son of God and so could do all these special things, but because he was full of the Holy Spirit. Wisdom, fear of the Lord, understanding, might, etc., the characteristics that are mentioned in verses 2 and 3 of Isaiah 11, they were the fruit of this Jesus, the, sorry, the presence of the Spirit in Jesus' life. It was that very same spirit that Jesus promised would be on his followers. And so we kind of opt out to doing God's work by saying, well, we are not the Son of God, we are not Jesus. For the people of Jesus are given that same spirit. And as well as that deepened godliness and the characteristics of his rule in verses 2 and following down to 9, there is from verse 10 and following... The point that the rule of God would be extended into all the world. Jesus' ministry was not just for one nation. It was not just about restoring the political power of one people. But it was about reconciliation, healing, and salvation for all the world. He sent his followers into all the world so that the good news of the kingdom would lead to the Messiah being greeted as king throughout the world. Now, of course, Isaiah can only paint this picture in the most general of terms. How could he have foreseen the way that the Messiah would be both a shoot from Jesse's stump and also the root? How could he have foreseen the miracle of the incarnation that God became one of us, became a descendant of, G- of Jesse and David, the same God through whom the world had been created in the first place? How could Isaiah have known of the kind of ministry and the impact of Jesus' ministry and about the gift of the Holy Spirit poured out on, on his people at Pentecost? He couldn't have known these things, but the main point of Isaiah 11, and he's writing to a people in 8th century BC who were in trouble, the main point is that though winter comes, it will not last. That though there are times when the ways of God are being tramped underfoot, though there are times when it seems it's just a stump that remains, God has not given up. God can, God will begin a new work, one that is deeper, greater, further reaching than yet we have known. The main point is that God will continue and not be frustrated, that he is not bound and limited in ways that we are, that he can grow a shoot from a stump, and this shoot can extend to a ministry throughout the whole world. That even from the most lifeless and even from the most unpromising of situations, his new life will come. Shoots will break through and flower. In Christ, after death, there is resurrection. And so often that has been the story of God's people And been the story in the church in the last 2,000 years that very often it has been from the most unpromising of circumstances and situations, from the most ordinary of things that great work has emerged. Not so very long we had a theatre group here talking about the life of Corrie ten Boom breathtakingly ordinary circumstances, and yet a huge work of blessing and salvation and rescue and and so on, and of forgiveness. There have been many testimonies of folks whose lives had been ruined and and, in dead ends, who were changed and transformed by the power of Christ. There are stories too in, the, in, in bigger context of the church seemingly under huge pressure and persecution and, and flourishing under that. Currently the church in Iran would be a good example of that. Ayatollah Khomeini and all the others did all their best to snuff out completely Christianity along with all other things that they didn't approve of. And today, even though persecution still remains, and today even though they have to do much of church life underneath the radar, as it were, the church in Iran is one of the fastest growing in the world. God does that, shoots coming out of stumps. Two observations in concluding. one. Is that while the salvation of God shows great love and tenderness in the way that it's given to us, He becomes one of us, shares our humanity. It is not a soft thing, it is not an indulging thing. Destruction and judgment are outcomes for those who ignore and reject the Messiah. Jesus said so. And Isaiah says so too in this chapter. And notice, even those who are delivered, verse 11 and verse 16 of the chapter, even those who are delivered are a remnant. Now, the prophet's words call for a response they call from a response from, from the people of his day, and they still call out to us who seek the kingdom of God. Seek it first. These words are not an encouragement to complacency. Phew, it's going to turn out all right in the end. They are words saying, sort out our priorities now. But secondly, the trustworthiness of God is very Trustworthy. So we needn't think, we shouldn't think that the trends that we simply see around us are inevitable. Uh, not very long after I came here, I was visiting um, an office bearer in a congregation who, who was saying to me that he couldn't see anything other than continuing decline for the church. Um, as we became more and more informed through science and things, as we became as a society more and more wealthy, so, so people saw less need for God in their lives. And, and that pattern would, would continue. Now, I see where that was coming from, but it's not what God says. It's not what God says. In fact, I was just reading an article this week about how many of the leading um, academics are actually having to rethink philosophers changing their minds and and saying, well, actually, hold on a minute. What we had assumed 20, 30 years ago might not be the case, and there are things that we simply cannot understand, we cannot explain unless there's a God um, at work. You see, we can maybe predict the seasons, summer to autumn to winter to spring, but we do not make them. And nor do we make the fortunes of the gospel turn for the better. That, That is a work of God. Only God can do that. But just as there are appropriate ways to behave in winter, put on warmer clothes, Make sure you're getting plenty of fluids and plenty of good food, heat the house and so on. Just as there are appropriate ways to behave in winter, so there are right and proper ways for the church to live through this winter season. Reflecting, searching, repenting, seeking. And that not in a spirit of desperation, but rather of anticipation. I suppose if the imagery of winter that I've been using breaks down, it breaks down here. All illustrations break down somewhere, don't they? In as much as the winter season leads on to, so far, autumn and uh, Winter and sorry, you know, winter to spring to summer to autumn and the continuity. And, and for the church today in the winter season, which I think is where we are, it is not a case of just sit tight and it will turn round and we'll be back to where we were. You're not going to go back to Sunday school trips with 300 people in double-decker buses and streamers out the windies and your your wee cakes and your and your mince pies. Um, I'm more than happy to go back to the mince pies, incidentally, but uh, the rest of it I can do without. Um, That's not going to come. We're not going to go back to that. That's, as I say, where the, where the imagery breaks down. What, what the story is through Scripture is that there, was a, there were these hard times, these barren times, these winter seasons, and then things got better. The, uh, another winter came another... but they weren't the same as the one before. And each time in the winter season, the test is about whether we believe that God is trustworthy and keep our eggs in the God basket whether we're prepared to be patient, and also whether we're prepared to reflect and say, well, actually, maybe there is some good pruning that needs to be done. Maybe there are some things that personally I need to cut out of my life. Maybe there are some things that as a congregation we should put to the side. Certainly there are things as a denomination that we should be leaving aside. Because that's what winter's for. And it's not because we have no alternative, it's not because we have our backs to the wall, but it's because time and time and time and time again, and and this is the point about these fluctuating times through Scripture, God has been calling His people back to Himself. Advent is a time for that kind of reflection. It's a time for us to take on board not just that Christ comes as a baby, but Christ will come again. And that the Christ who will come again is a Christ who went through death so that there could be resurrection. There will be a highway, verse 16, a new dawn. Whether it is a brighter age for just another season or whether it's the full coming of the kingdom when Christ returns, we do not know just as 8th century B.C. Isaiah did not know. But it's sufficient to know that the God who grew the shoot of Jesus from the stump of failed Israel is still at work, still sovereign, and still committed to that very same salvation. Let us pray.